All right. Good morning again. Okay, if you could have dinner with any one person from human history, who would it be? Somebody who is maybe currently living, someone who is already deceased. Who would you have dinner with if you could choose one person? Who would you go to dinner with? What would you talk about? Why would you choose that one person? Maybe you would choose someone that you, that you knew that's already gone on to be with the Lord. Uh, maybe you would choose a famous person who's currently living. Maybe you would choose somebody from history who made a big impact on this world. Or maybe, because you're sitting in a church pew and because you're looking at the slide, maybe you would give the religious answer and say, I choose to have dinner with Jesus if I could have dinner with anyone. Who would say Jesus? You know, that's the safe answer. When you're sitting in church, you can always say Jesus. But this morning, we're going to start in Luke chapter 7, and we're going to look at several instances where Jesus goes into the home of a religious leader to eat uh, with a Pharisee, or uh, sometimes these teachers of the law are present. So if you want to turn somewhere, turn to Luke chapter 7. And after we read this text this morning, what you might realize is that you might not want Jesus coming over for dinner. Or you might not want to have dinner with Jesus after you see some of his teaching points. Uh, This month we're doing a sermon series called Jesus is Coming to Dinner. And in the Gospel of Luke, if you missed it last week, there are several uh, important teachings and conversations that take place in Luke with Jesus around a dinner table. That's an important part of the Gospel of Luke. A meal, a food, being in someone's house, sitting at a table. Last week we looked at Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. And how unheard of and unlikely that would have been in the first century for a rabbi to go into the home of a group of tax collectors. And this week week we're going to look at Jesus at the home of religious leaders. So we're going to start with what was our scripture reading from this morning, and that's Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. I'll paraphrase and, and give some teaching spots, and we'll read some. In verse 36, a Pharisee asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. Uh, Luke, I believe, likes to use humor in the way that he tells his story. So what you might notice uh, throughout Luke are some some repeating themes, and you're going to notice how it's kind of humorous how Jesus keeps uh, receiving these invitations to come and to eat, but the way that he conducts himself as as a guest, you would think that eventually he would stop receiving invitations. But he receives this invitation, and a woman in the city who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears, And dry them with her hair. She continued kissing his feet and anointing them with ointment. So last week I mentioned that it's interesting that in this context that there's always somebody on the outside knowing what's going on on the inside. And last week we looked at how the religious leaders were outside grumbling. And here we have this woman who comes into someone else's house kind of crashes the party and begins to wash Jesus' feet with her hair, with her tears, and with this perfume. Imagine all the tears that were shed, enough to be able to bathe Jesus' feet, enough to really get them wet. And imagine those dirty, dusty feet in the first century, walking around with sandals on these dusty roads, and how dirty their feet would have been. And she's cleaning those feet with her tears and with her hair. But there's more of an open atmosphere 
courtyard type setting. And that's why she's able to just walk right in. Uh, in our culture, we have closed doors. Most people don't know what's going on inside of our houses, but that was not the case in a world with no electricity, no air conditioning. You know, they had open walls, and there was a way to really just kind of walk in, and that's what she does. She comes in. We assume she's had a previous encounter with Jesus. Somehow, there, there's something about Jesus that's, that's moved her with this emotional experience, so much so that she just walks right in to someone else's house. And imagine being the Pharisee who is hosting this dinner. He's probably embarrassed. As the host, as the homeowner, this type of woman is in his house. And Jesus, who's supposed to be a respected teacher, is allowing her to do this. We don't know what she did that caused her to have this reputation as a sinner, but if you read commentaries, most commentators believe that she was some sort of lady of the night. Like she had a reputation that followed her. But there was something about Jesus that brought her there this evening. And in verse 39, we get inside the head of the Pharisee. Now the Pharisee who had invited him saw it. He said to himself, Jesus always knows the hearts and the thoughts. He says, if this man were a prophet, He would have known who and what kind of woman this is and who it is that's touching him. She is a sinner. So for the next few moments, I want to just focus on that, that thought. That she is a sinner and the way this Pharisee is viewing her. And in order to understand that, we need to do a little psychology. Now, I'm no psychologist, but I know how to read books, so I understand a little bit about psychology. Uh, There was a book that came out several years ago called Unclean. It was written by a man named Richard Beck. He's a psychology professor at ACU, but he's also an experimental psychologist. Which, to me, that sounds like a fun profession. Just get people in a room and experiment on them. Uh, It sounds a little bit strange, but I think it would be kind of fun. And so they've done some experiments. And he writes about these experiments in this book. And one of the experiments is as simple as, it's called a Dixie Cup test. And it's as simple as it sounds. They just get a Dixie Cup fill it full of water, cold water, clean water, and all the participants who are sitting around a table take a drink of this water. Sounds simple enough. And then they ask all the participants to get as, the biggest spit wad they can and spit in the cup. And then after they do that, all the participants have spit in the cup, then they say, now take another drink. How many of you would take a drink after you spit in the cup? Okay, the, the way the results come out is most of the time most adults will will refuse to take another drink. One time I tried this experiment on a group of teenagers and it backfired on me because most of them just turned around and and took a drink right after they spit in it. They didn't have a problem with it, but apparently most adults, they do have a problem. But what they point out is that spit, that saliva is in your mouth right now. It was just in your mouth, they would tell them. But now that it's outside of your mouth, they view it with disgust. So this is what he calls disgust psychology, where once you view something as disgusting, you place boundaries. And God has given us certain disgust triggers, and disgust triggers that we have are influenced by our culture and what we consider clean and unclean, but disgust triggers prevent harmful things from entering our body. So we have disgust triggers, and we place these boundaries to keep whatever it is disgusting away from us. Another experiment that he talks about in the book is called the juice cup test, 
Or you get a cup of juice, whatever your favorite cup of juice would be. I would probably choose orange juice. I don't know what you would choose. But you take a drink of this juice. You taste that it is good. Uh, It's cold. It tastes good. And then, to further the experiment, they place this in the cup, a cockroach. Just for a second, let it swim around the top. They pull it back out. Then they boil the juice. Then they pour the juice through a water purifier, cool it back down, and ask the participants to take another drink. Would you do it? Most adults, again, these are adults that we're dealing with, most adults refuse to take another sip. Although they watch the boiling process, boiling out any bacteria that could have come from this cockroach, they watch it go through the water purifier, but even still, this is what's called contamination psychology. And this involves the law of permanence. And that means once something is contaminated, we always view it as contaminated. No matter what takes place, once it's contaminated, it's always contaminated. Now, all those things make sense when it comes to spitting in a cup or dropping a cockroach in a cup. We don't want to drink that. That's disgusting. That is contaminated. But the problem is, when you start viewing human beings with disgust or contamination and you start placing boundaries and keeping certain human beings away from you, Jesus had a problem with that. And the way this Pharisee, Simon, that's invited Jesus to his house, the way that most Pharisees and religious leaders conduct their social lives, is they view people like this woman, like tax collectors that we looked at last week, Gentiles, and others, lepers, you name it. They view human beings with disgust. And contamination, and as a result, they try to keep these humans away from them. They put lepers outside of the city, and if a woman approaches their house, they say, she is a sinner, she doesn't belong in our company. And Jesus seemed to have a problem with that. Continuing on in Luke chapter 7, we'll look back again at verse, verse 39, he says, That this woman, if Jesus just knew who she was, she is a sinner. So they viewed her by her sin. Not by her virtues, but by her sin. Karl Barth, the great theologian, once said, When we speak of our virtues, we are competitors. When we confess our sins, we become brothers. The Pharisees viewed each other by their virtues and other religious leaders. But they viewed everyone else by their sin. But when Jesus comes along, people who are tax collectors, sinners, and these women and other who, others who are in this category would come to Jesus all in the same boat as sinners. They knew their sin, but they all came to Jesus because they knew their need for grace. But the Pharisees struggled with that because they failed to see their own brokenness. Another Christian author by the name of Philip Yancey says, the Christians don't like other Christians who sin differently than they do. How true is that for all of us? We may view someone based on their sin and what they've done wrong in their past, but we can avoid looking at our own sin. And that's what's going on in this situation. That's a little of the psychology behind it. So Jesus is going to turn to Simon in verse 40 and following, and I'll paraphrase, but he tells a parable and he says there's two men who owed a lot of money and both debts were forgiven. So which one is going to be more responsive? What's the one who had the bigger debt that was canceled. So in verse 44, Jesus turned to the woman, and he says to Simon, so he's looking at the woman, but he's speaking to Simon the Pharisee, and he said, do you see this woman? 
Do you see her? He doesn't. What he sees is contamination. What he sees is disgust. He says, do you, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears, dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. So what Jesus tells her is she has become a better host than the actual host himself. She has shown Jesus greater honor than the Pharisee Simon who has invited Jesus over for dinner. And there on the spot, Jesus forgives her sins. And he says that she, because she has a lot of sins, and they're all forgiven, she has a lot of love to give. But someone like Simon, who feels like he has no sins to forgive, that means he doesn't have much love to give. And they have a problem with Jesus forgiving sins. And this all takes place while Jesus is the guest at someone's house. So like I said, you may think twice about wanting to have dinner with Jesus. Look at Luke chapter 11. Again, Jesus is going to receive an invitation to go have dinner at the home of a Pharisee. In Luke chapter 11, in verse 37, we won't spend a whole lot of time on this section, but we'll just highlight a few things. In verse 37, while Jesus was teaching, a Pharisee invited him to dine with him. So he went in and he took his place at the table. Again, table fellowship. It was so important in that culture. And they invite Jesus to come over, but right away there's a problem. In verse 38, the Pharisee was amazed to see that that he did not first wash before dinner. You see, they had their rituals, the way that they would wash their bodies, cups and plates and kettles, and the way they would wash, they had their rituals. And there was a certain way they would go about it so that they would be clean and not unclean when it comes to a meal. But here comes Jesus, a Jewish man, Jewish rabbi, knowing the customs, knowing the rituals, and he just plops down at the table and he's ready to eat. I think what he's doing is he's using this as a teaching opportunity. He comes in and sits down like he doesn't know any better. So they're offended by it, and he uses that as an opportunity to teach the Pharisees something. But his teachings are kind of harsh. They're a bunch of woes. He's calling them out on their hypocrisy. And he goes through and he tells the Pharisees what they're doing wrong, basically, And then look at verse 45. One of the teachers of the law answered, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us too. So he probably shouldn't have opened his mouth because then following that, Jesus says, Oh yeah, woe to you teachers of the law also. So he gives them what they're hypocritical about. And then by the end of the dinner, they're hostile towards Jesus. Not a great guest. He's using these opportunities to teach something, but it's a lesson they don't want to hear. Look at Luke chapter 14. This is where I want to spend some time. In Luke 14, Jesus goes to another Pharisee's house. This is where I think it starts to become humorous in Luke. In Luke 14, 1, on one occasion, Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on a Sabbath, and they were watching him closely. So again, he receives an invitation to go eat with Pharisees. By now, they've probably heard how Jesus conducts himself. So you would think the invitations would stop at some point. But the Pharisees, being a proud group of people, still thinking that they can outdo Jesus, they can bring him in, they can use their words, they can verbally spar with him, and they're going to catch him. 
And they're going to prove that he's a fraud. So they bring him in on a Sabbath day, and that's already a problem because Jesus is going around healing people on a Sabbath day, but they believe that's considered work, so they're offended by this. So they intentionally bring Jesus over on a Sabbath day to eat, and then they place this person in front of him who needs healing. So what does Jesus do? He heals the man, and then he calls him out, and he says, you would do the same thing for your animal, so you should at least give the safe courtesy to human beings. And then in verse 6 of Luke 14, Jesus silences them. So again, he's a guest at their house, and he has now silenced them. And then in verse 7 through 11, it says, Jesus noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, so he told them a parable. And this is what he says in verse 8. When you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited you may come to you and say, give this person your place, and then in disgrace you would start to take the lowest place. When you're invited, go sit down at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, and then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. And this is the point. This is the teaching point. Verse 11. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus' half-brother, James, writes a letter in the book of James, James chapter 2, and he uses an example of not showing favoritism. And he says, suppose someone walks into your meeting and he's dressed in fine clothes, and you say, come sit over here. But then someone comes and dressed in shabby clothes, and you say, go sit down there. Sit at the lowest spot. James says you're not expressing your faith if you're doing that, but what James is doing is he's borrowing from Luke 14. He's borrowing from the teachings of Jesus. Jesus says humility rather than pride. Choose the lowest seat rather than the best seat because he notices that the guest present at that dinner chose the better seats. In the Roman society... Everything was about status and about rank and where you fit in in society and then where you sat at the table told you how much you're worth. And in the Jewish world, without realizing it, they had adapted some of those principles and they had ranking at the table. But what Jesus says is that his table, the table is level. There's not a higher seat than another That at the table, we all sit at the same level and everybody has a place at the table. And in Luke chapter 14, verse 12 through 14, this is where it really gets a little tough. He said to the one who had invited him, and and normally as a guest, you don't tell the host who they should and shouldn't invite. I would not advise you to do that, to go to someone's house and say, here's who you really should have invited. But that's what Jesus does. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and then you would be repaid. When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, but you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So Jesus has an odd teaching When you give a luncheon or a banquet, don't invite those who you know, family and friends. Instead, invite the poor, the lame, the blind, and the crippled. Those are the very people in those categories that Pharisees would have viewed with 
disgust or contamination. And Jesus says, instead, those are the people you should be inviting. But I don't think Jesus wants us to view this legalistically. And I've done that before in my life. I've looked at this text as if Jesus was starting a new law. So every time I went to lunch or dinner, I thought, i got to grab somebody from one of these four categories and make sure they're included also to obey Jesus' teaching. But I don't think Jesus wants us to view this in a legalistic way. Instead, I think he wants us, and I think he wanted the Pharisees, to get to the deeper meaning behind the teaching. He is asking those who follow him to radically reorient your social life. Not in a way where you position yourself to be better than others, but in a way where everybody has a place at the table. I had a friend who used to host these barbecues on Saturday afternoons, not all the time, just occasionally. And there was always a random group of people, kind of like you see in this picture, just a random group of people eating together. Not everyone was friends. So I asked him, as the host of this barbecue, how do you get this group of people together? Like, why these people? And he said, I start with my male friends or acquaintances, and I only invite the males who I know do a pretty good job with females. They can get girls. That was what he told me. And he said, so when they come, then the girls are more likely to come. And he said, I intentionally do not invite my friends who are guys who are weird or off-putting to girls. Because if they come, girls are less likely to come. And I said, that's very shallow. And he said, I know, but it works. So it worked for him. But as I thought about that, I thought, you know, at least he admits it. Because in a lot of ways, we all kind of live our social lives like that. Maybe we don't mean to. It's not intentional. It's just something that happens. We're always wanting to position ourselves, to place ourselves around certain people, to make us look a certain way, to manage our perception of what others have of us. But Jesus comes along and he says, forget all that. Everybody has a place at this table. And when you invite others, when, it, when it's your friends or your family, and Jesus still ate with disciples, he still ate with family, so he wasn't placing a mandate on doing that, he was just saying don't do that at the neglect of others. And that's what we have a tendency of doing. Look at verse 15. One of the dinner guests, on hearing this, said to him, Blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. What he's referring to is this great kingdom banquet. What this man, this guest is referring to is what I referred to last week as the eschatological banquet, or this great heavenly banquet at the end of time. Blessed is the one who will eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb from Revelation 19.9. That someday Jesus imagines a time where he's going to have this multi-ethnic table in heaven where all peoples of all languages and all tribes will be invited to this great heavenly banquet. And all these meals in Luke foreshadow that heavenly banquet. And here this guest says, yes, that's an exciting time. Blessed is the person who comes to that great kingdom banquet. So Jesus uses this as another teaching opportunity. And he said to them, someone gave a great dinner and invited many. At the time for the dinner, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, 
I have bought a piece of land, and I must go out and see it. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I have been married, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant returned and reported this to his master. More than likely, in this story, those who are turning down the invitation are probably the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. That's who it represents. The outwardly pious Jews. They have all these excuses and they're not coming to the banquet. So the servant tells the master this. Then the owner of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out at once into the streets and the alleys of town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you ordered has been done and there is still room. The poor, the lame, the blind, the crippled, they don't have anything to hold them back. They don't have any possessions to hold them back, so they say yes to the invitation. But there's still room. Then the master said, leave, go out to the roads and the lanes and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who are invited will taste my dinner. That third group, when the servant goes out again to extend invitations, probably represents the Gentiles. Because in the big scheme of things, that was Jesus' plan. It wasn't just for the Jews, it was for Gentiles. For all who inhabit the earth, all who are created in the image of God. That was his plan. So keep going out and extending this invitation. But there are some who turn the invitation down. So what we see in this parable and in this table fellowship time that Jesus has at the home of this prominent Pharisee is that God is not satisfied with empty chairs. He keeps sending the servant out to invite more people because he wants every chair to be filled. What we have a tendency of doing is we, we have a tendency of getting comfortable and settling in and not going out and inviting. Because that's the easy thing to do. It's comfortable. As we start a new season of connect groups, maybe you get excited about the mission and, and inviting people to your house to be a part of your connect group, but as months go on and you get busy with life, the tendency is to just stop inviting So my encouragement to you, like I encouraged you last week, is to keep asking. Who is just an ask away? Who is just an invite away that may accept an invitation to come to your house? And in doing so, they may be accepting a bigger invitation from Christ. So don't get comfortable. Jesus did not allow the Pharisees to get comfortable. He kept challenging them and pushing them. But what we see throughout the rest of the New Testament is that Jesus' plan is put in place. You read the book of Acts. They start reaching out to people of all tongues, all languages, but they're not really reaching out to the Gentiles. And a little history, Peter, one of those disciples who would have been present with Jesus at the Pharisee's house, learning from his rabbi, in Acts chapter 10, he goes into the home of a Gentile, which was a big deal. Now, he had to receive a lot of nudges from God, had had this dream, and God basically forced him into it. But finally, Peter did it. In Acts chapter 11, he has to explain why he went into the home to share table fellowship with a Gentile. And slowly you start to see this meshing of Jews and Gentiles in, in homes over a table. And things seem great. And then after Jesus... 
the world has changed forever. There is a significant shift in human history from before Jesus and then after Jesus. Before Jesus, humility was not a virtue. After Jesus, these Christ followers came along teaching that humility actually is a virtue. Before Jesus, we were not very high as human beings on human dignity. It was a pretty harsh world, and it still is in a lot of ways. But after Jesus, compassion and viewing human beings as equal, that came from the life and teachings of Jesus. He literally changed the world and started a movement by what he taught sitting at a dinner table. There was a man in the 19th century who was so inspired by Luke 14 and these dinner conversations that he decided he would move into a leper colony. And he would minister among them. And every morning he would join them for breakfast at a table. Not as someone that's separated or superior, but he would join them as an equal and he would do a devotional with them. And he would always start by saying, God loves you lepers. And then one day he said, God loves us lepers. And he died there of leprosy. He was not a leper when he arrived, but he died of leprosy. But he was so moved by the compassion and the teachings of Jesus that he said, I want to be a part of this banquet here on earth and in the banquet to come. And Jesus inspires and motivates and changes the world. And things seem great. And all of that seems positive until you get to the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 2, this is the last passage I'll read, but in Galatians 2, Paul mentions something in this letter that's disturbing. He says, when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face because he stood self-condemned. For until certain people came from James, he used to eat with Gentiles. So Peter's living it out. He's modeling what he saw Jesus do. What he listened to Jesus teach. He's eating with Gentiles, but after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction. So he's afraid of the Jews and what they would think about him for eating with Gentiles. And then other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by all of their hypocrisy. So what we see in Peter is this sad note. I don't know how his life ended. We know legend how he was killed, but we don't know what his social life looked like towards the end. But we see here in Paul's letter that Peter takes a big step backwards. He was moving forward with what Jesus taught and what Jesus modeled for him, and now he takes a big step backwards. But Paul loved Peter enough to not keep him the same. He loved Peter enough to call him out on this and oppose him to his face and remind him of his Lord and Savior Jesus and who Jesus chose to have table fellowship with. When we read the Gospels, when we read the Gospel of Luke and who Jesus chose to eat with, one of the things that's very evident is how much Jesus loved those who were marginalized. You can't miss that. But what we also see is how much Jesus loved Pharisees and teachers of the law. Now you read through these texts and you may say, it doesn't sound like it. He's pretty harsh. But I think he loves them. And he loves them enough he's not going to let them stay the same. Jesus was willing to step into their homes and challenge them and say, this is what God is trying to do. And this is where you're messing it up. And he loved them enough to do that. 
And I think the same is for us today. Jesus loves us enough right where we are as sinners, but he also loves us enough to not let us stay there. He wants us to change. And he'll use a table to change you. He'll use whatever method he can if your heart is willing and receptive. This morning we're going to offer an invitation as we sing these last few songs. If you need to find a shepherd, if you need to come up front, we want you to know that there's a place for you and you are more than welcome to respond while we stand and sing.